0: Let's go ahead and open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. As we begin this morning, our second section of our study entitled, The Kingdom of God. The Kingdom of Heaven, I'm sorry. The Kingdom of Heaven. I felt that it would be remiss to leave this series without answering various questions and giving various explanations to a statement that Jesus makes several times in Matthew chapter 13. I believe Matthew uniquely recorded these statements for us to remind us of the role of the kingdom of heaven here on earth. And if you begin in Matthew chapter 13, you start in verse 24, and you see, That Jesus speaking in parables, and and Matthew writes, Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like. Then you go to verse 31. Another parable he put forward, the kingdom of heaven is like. Verse 33. Another parable he spoke, the kingdom of heaven is like. Then he goes down to verse 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like. Verse 45. you catching the pattern here? And again, the kingdom of heaven is like. In verse 47. And the kingdom of heaven is like. Verse 52. And the kingdom of heaven is like. Over and over and over again. The reasoning for Matthew recording these parables that Jesus spoke clarifying the kingdom of heaven to those who were listening specifically that of the disciples is because jesus knew that the kingdom of god would be in a form that they were not expecting it to be let us remember that the main reason that jesus was not received in his first coming as their messiah was due to the fact that he didn't appear to be mobilizing the nation of Israel. He didn't appear to be looking to, uh, to assume the throne. He didn't appear to be trying to resist those who oppressed the nation of Israel and to free them from that oppression. His mission seemed quite contrary to all that they believed that it was going to look like. Now, we know that the Old Testament prophecies concerning the establishment of the kingdom of God will be filled at his second coming. But yet, the ministry of Jesus at his first coming, he introduced his ministry by saying that the kingdom of God is at hand. And he did usher in, there was an inauguration of the kingdom of heaven. But if you look at the placement of these various sayings, you notice that in chapter 12, the religious leaders are already challenging his identity. In verses 38 to 42, the scribes and the Pharisees ask for a sign to indicate to them once and for all truly if he is the Messiah or not. And of course, he refused to capitulate. And he said the only sign that you'll get is that of the sign of Jonah. At the end of chapter 13, the rejection starts to manifest itself when he's rejected at Nazareth. Jesus knew that the establishment of the kingdom of heaven was going to be something much different than the Jewish expectations that they had at that time. He wasn't going to rise to power at his first coming. He wasn't going to assume the throne and lead uh, Israel and Jerusalem into, this, into their renewed zenith of existence as they experienced under King David at his first coming. All of this will take place at his second And this was the confusion from the prophecies of the Old Testament. One would uh, indicate a suffering servant. The other would indicate a reigning king. And so Jesus needed to establish, especially within those who follow him and the disciples, this is what the kingdom of heaven is going to look like here on earth until we wait for his second coming or while we wait for his second coming. Does that make sense? That's what we're going to be looking at. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at these statements. But before getting into it all, Matthew, I believe, strategically places the sower of the seed as the parable to lead us into the understanding of the kingdom of God. We have taught on the parable of the sower of the seed many times here at church. I'm sure it's a very familiar parable to all of you. And of course, it's meaning, but we'll go through that in just a moment. I believe that Matthew indicates here that the chief primary existence for God's people here on this earth, while we wait for his return and the establishment of his uh, physical kingdom, is to be witnesses for him here in this world. That's our primary purpose as individual Christians, as though, uh, though we may hold different positions such as pastors and so forth and have different giftings. The primary purpose of the church is to go into the world and make disciples, winning them to Jesus Christ through the gospel and then preparing them and raising them up for them to fulfill the ministry and purposes that God has called them to. It's a two-fold element discipleship, winning one to Christ and also discipling them, teaching, training them up in the way of the Lord so that they may fulfill the purposes and plans in which God has for them. Now there's a seismic shift happening in the church in America. It didn't happen overnight, but it's certainly escalating in speed, and that is this. The Bible says that the purpose of the role of a pastor, a teacher, is to equip the saints to fulfill the work of the ministry. That's my job, to equip you to go out and to fulfill the plans and purposes that God has for you. Giving you the tools you need, the the knowledge that you need, preparing you for what God has for you. The problem that has occurred in America is this that the saints are no longer coming to church for that purpose. They are not looking to be equipped for the fulfillment of ministry. We have adopted a much more consumer mentality. How much can the Christian consume? And you hear things, what have I gotten out of it? How has it benefited me? And they aren't really looking to discover where they place within the body of Christ, fulfilling and using the gifts that God has given them to continue the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. LifeWay has been doing a series of surveys and data collection over the last several years. And we still find that one of the top reasons that people come to church is simply to feel better. Now, to me, I understand you're coming into church and you need encouragement. You need to be challenged, maybe, or maybe you're feeling better would begin with a little bit of conviction leading to repentance. But very few indicated that they are coming to church for the purpose of being equipped to fulfill the work of the ministry that God has for them. You getting saved is one thing, and we all rejoice out of, over that. But that's not the end all to it. Even verse 10 of Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 says, God has saved you for the purposes of you fulfilling the works in which He has uh, assigned to you from the, before the foundations of the world. And if we feel that we are going to be healthy Christians simply by coming and consuming and not using the gifts that God has given us for the purposes and the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we miss the whole understanding of Christianity. And as a result, we are going to be very miserable Christians. So as we begin with the sower of the seed, let us understand that Jesus is preparing the disciples, uh, I should say, preparing them on what they can expect as they take God's uh, word into this world. And it's interesting, because there are many who confine the sower of the seed to simply evangelism, because that's the way Luke presents it. But Matthew presents it a little differently. It's a subtle difference, but it's a significant difference. Matthew simply addresses Jewish people and says, preparing, you know, the Word of God is going to land in your heart and this is what's going to happen. Because I believe that as a Christian, we can inadvertently harden our heart and therefore the teaching of the Word of God doesn't penetrate in the way it should. I believe that we as Christians can hear the Word of God and our heart be shallow and I often believe that a consumer manifest, uh, manifestation of Christianity in the life of a believer often indicates a shallow heart for God. And of course, the Word of God then never f- digs deep in the roots and uh, you know, is, is stifled very quickly. I believe that a Christian can hear the Word of God, obey it, but then a crisis occurs in their life. You know, uh, persecution, trials, troubles, the world comes against them and immediately they, band- they abandon what they know to be true and they try to run in the other direction. The Jewish people had the Word of God. They knew and had a history with God. And so, as the Old Testament stated, it was time to break up the follow ground as, I, as Jeremiah and Hosea shouted that from the uh, from the pinnacles of the roofs. It's time now to break up the fallow ground of our hearts, the hardened hearts that we have occurred, incurred over the years. But unless our heart is right, we will not embrace the significance of the true identity of the kingdom of heaven. If we, and this is almost hard to imagine... We have allowed Christianity to become a self-serving faith. Isn't that incredibly an oxymoron if I've ever heard one? By far. How does it benefit me? How does it benefit my family? That's about the extent of our concern. It's so much bigger than that. And if we read it with that reduced understanding, we are going to miss so much of what God has for us. So let us begin in verse 1. Let's read our text together. We're going to read the first 23 verses. In verse 1. Now on the same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea, and a great multitude were gathered together to him, so that he got into a boat and sat. And the whole multitude stood on the shore. And then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on the stony places, where they did not have much earth, and immediately they sprung up, because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty and some thirty. And he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. The disciples came and said to him, "Why, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven but to them it has not been given for the, for whoever has to him more will be given and he will have abundance but whoever does not have even what he has will be taken away from him therefore i speak to them in parables because seeing they do not hear see excuse me and hearing they do not hear nor do they understand and in them The prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the heart of the people have grown dull. Their ears are hardened of hearing, and their eyes have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should hear them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see, and did not see it, and hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Therefore hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the wicked one comes and snatches away what has, was sown in his heart. This is uh, he who receives seed on the wayside. But he who receives seed on the stony place, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arise, because of the word immediately he stumbles." Now he who received among the thorns is he who hears the word. And the, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and the, becomes unfruitful. But he who receives seed on good ground is he who hears the word and understands it. For indeed it bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty and some 30. Father, we just ask now you speak to our hearts as individuals and a church on the importance of these words. We thank you so much for your word, and we ask now that you would open it up to us. In Jesus' name, amen. We have a sower. We have a seed. We have different soils in which that seed lands upon we have this mystery of Jesus now speaking in parables. And we have the explanation given to the disciples of the meaning of the parable. As Jesus began to understand and see the rejection of the nation of Israel, specifically that of the religious leaders, he began now to teach and to speak in parables. For the Jewish people were being held accountable for knowing the time in which their Messiah would come. And this is one of the means by which Jesus is now holding them accountable for knowing the time. Matthew makes it abundantly clear that they should have known the time of his coming, and yet they missed it even though all the signs were there and the prophecies were being fulfilled. That's Matthew's emphasis throughout the entire book, showing the fulfillment of prophecy that Jesus had fulfilled to demonstrate that he truly was the Messiah in whom they were anticipating. But he really wanted now to focus in on the uh, development of his immediate disciples. Though the crowds were uh, able to hear They did not understand, and the revelation of the understanding appeared to be given to the disciples of the various parables in which he spoke. And this leads us to an understanding that we'll look at in just the moment. That you and I as believers in Jesus Christ can see in a world that is completely blinded. The world around us, individuals around us who do not know Jesus Christ... We know that the enemy of this world has blinded them to that reality. If you look with me, you'll discover that this is what Paul was speaking of when he wrote to the, those in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses, I'm sorry, chapter 4, verses 3 through 6. Let's try again. I might need you, Nathan. Once again, technology working against me instead of for me. Let's go ahead and slide. You got it? Thanks. Notice what Paul says when he writes to the Corinthians. He says, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves, you bondservants, for the sake of Jesus. For it is the God in whom commanded light to shine out of darkness who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, In the face of Jesus Christ. So, we as Christians must realize that we are surrounded by people who are spiritually blind. They don't understand our Christian life, they don't understand our Christian vocabulary. They're blinded. As one pastor once said, that explaining Christianity to one who doesn't believe is like explaining the color blue to someone who cannot see. It's almost an impossibility. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that opens their eyes. It is a work of the Holy Spirit and God that takes the gospel and opens the eyes of the individual. You and I in and of ourselves, we cannot save anyone. It must be a work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the individual. But the Jewish people had the Old Testament. They had the revelation of God and they were accountable for what they had. And seeing their rejection, seeing them turn away from the Messiah and follow again the religious leaders as they did over time. As we saw the crowds gather for the miracles and the feedings and so forth, but they then dispersed at the teaching of Jesus Christ. Jesus now speaks in parables to allow the beginning of the manner in which the kingdom of God would spread across this whole entire world and that is in the accompaniment of the Holy Spirit using the gospel of Jesus to do just that. So let us understand that we must be patient with the people in whom we are sharing the gospel with. And even if they academically accept it, it still must be a work of the Spirit to change their heart. Because even the demons know and believe, correct? correct? And yet, of course, they are far from the salvation of God. So as these, the sower, in our case, these will be the disciples taking the word of God. In the uh, immediate case, it's Jesus speaking on behalf of God. It will be the disciples who therefore take the word into the world, as they will. The seed, obviously, is the word of God. And the word of God is displayed in two different manners in the Bible. When Luke, in Luke chapter 8 refers to it, he uses the terms that indicate that he is speaking of salvation, the gospel, when he uh, outlines, or I should say records, the parable of the sower. Reason for that is that he was writing to Theophanus, who he wanted to see saved. And so he is using it in an evangelistic way. But Matthew here uses a word that would speak of the entirety of God's word. And that would make sense because Matthew is writing to Jewish people. Do you you get the parallel? Okay. So is it either or? No, it's both. The gospel and the word of God then there follows. Okay. Because obviously the Jewish people demonstrated that the heart of the individual could be hardened. Throughout the Old Testament, God is rebuking them for the hardness of their heart. He is uh, challenging them because they've hardened their hearts against the Lord. Now in the new economy, the new covenant, the Holy Spirit is working in conjunction with God's Word in a unique and dynamic way during this time as we wait for the coming of the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But the individual can still harden their heart against the Holy Spirit. For one reason or another, often it has to do with unbelief. See, God doesn't force you. He allows you to grow. But we must be in His Word, prayerfully submitting ourselves to God's Word and not resisting the work of the Word in our heart through the Holy Spirit, quenching, therefore, the Spirit in our lives, and so it's a dual meaning here. For the Jewish people, they were responsible for knowing the word of God, and that is the manner in which it is presented to them. When it comes to Theophilus, who Luke was trying to write to, the book, the Gospel of Luke, and the Book of Acts, he is trying to share with Theophilus what God was doing—a Gentile individual who appeared that Luke, this was Luke writing to him saying, here's what Jesus has done, and here's what the disciples are now doing through his name in hopes of Theophilus' salvation. There are many who believe that Theophilus did get saved, but that's in historical records. We don't have that biblically confirmed. So let us be aware that all of us here now need to consider this parable of the sowing of the seed. If it is one who does not know the Lord, let us be careful to know that we can resist the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if it's one who has embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us understand. You know, we could have hardened our hearts and therefore not receiving more and maybe entered into a period that we are no longer teachable. Maybe we have... Uh, gotten involved uh, in, in the you know the cares of this world are now stifling out the things of god i was hoping that this crisis would bring people to their realization that they need jesus christ as their savior i was praying for that for a year now i've been praying for that but i also should have been praying for christians because many Christians, in the wake of the uh, uh, difficulties that this year has brought about, seem to be gravitating more towards the world again. As they see this rise of antagonism against Christianity beginning to occur. As this false ideology of awokeness is you know, spreading across our nation. Christians seem to be capitulating rather than standing up and saying no. These these ideologies are not going to save this world. This isn't going to heal the racial divisions by us applying critical race theory. It's not going to happen. If you want to deal with the woes of the world, you must begin to deal with the depravity of man's heart. And that can only occur through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Christians seem to be going the other way because they have been convinced that in one way or another that if I conform to this world, I'll be better prepared to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful that Jesus did just the opposite. Just this week, I heard someone use that verse out of the Uh, epistle of paul when he says i become all things to all men that i may win some of them thinking that this justified their conformity to the false ideologies of this world it has nothing to do with that paul the apostle said that if he was amongst jewish people he would observe jewish laws if he was amongst gentiles he would allow for the freedoms of christianity to to surface as long as he could present the gospel faithfully but us becoming like the world to reach the world was nowhere in the thinking of Paul when he brought that verse forward. Nowhere. In fact, Paul says just the opposite. Do not be, be transformed, but not, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, he said. We need to be very careful as we move forward this morning. So, we have the parable. We have the reasoning for, and I'm not going into this exhaustively, for the reasons that parables are being spoken. But then we have the explanation in verse 18. Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away What was sown in his heart, this is he who receives seed on the wayside. So this was an agricultural illustration that they all would have been familiar with. An individual sowing seed in hopes for a crop to be produced and harvest. And again, when they sowed seed, they would simply walk and throw it wherever it may land. Now, Jesus purposely gave the parable in the manner in which he did, and, makes, and, and gives no attention to the preparation of the soil that would have commonly occurred beforehand. Nobody would have begun to sow seed unless the field was first prepared to receive that seed. And the preparing of that field was breaking up the fallow ground. And in the preparation of that field, they would have broken up the hard ground They would have uh, moved the stony ground, removed the stones, and allowed for a deeper penetration of the seed. Or thirdly, they would have dealt with the thorns and cleared those thorns out so the seed wouldn't be choked out before them. But Jesus doesn't specify all of that here because the nation of Israel was already accountable to that by the call of Jeremiah. When Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah 4.3, For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up uh, your fallow ground, and do not sow among the thorns. Hosea wrote, and he said, Sow for yourself righteousness reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he comes and reigns in righteousness. And so they were already called to this preparation. But Jesus is indicating that they had never prepared their hearts for the coming of the Messiah. They haven't done it. And so the sower of the seed is scattering it now, and the people were not responsible for preparing their hearts to receive it, except a small few, 25% if, if you want to get technical. And as a result, notice what happened as the seed emerged. The first falls on hardened soil. This would have indicated a walking path, something that has been compressed by the pressures that were upon it. And nothing compresses and pressures the heart more into a hardened state than unbelief. Adopting the things of this world will harden. The heart of the individual, such as continuous rejection of God's Word, pride, com, uh, pressure to conform to the world around us. And Satan says, simp- I'm sorry, Jesus says simply that Satan comes and takes that seed away. The second is of shallow soil. There is an initial appeared reception but they believe for a while, maybe in an emotional state. There's even maybe some joy, but it never gains root. And as Spurgeon said, it doesn't gain water, the spirit. And after the testing of time, it being examined before the people and before their, themselves, the sun withers it. Now, when Jewish people use the term of sunshine, obviously in an agricultural context, But think about the way it is used throughout the Old Testament. It also refers to time. It refers to, of course, sun up, sun down was the way that they calculated time. It's the way that they calculated days, weeks, months, and years. So over a period of time, things grow cold in the person's heart. The sun withers it, and it doesn't take root, and it doesn't produce fruit. Thirdly, there's a thorny soil. Again, there appears to be an initial reception. They hear it, they listen to it, but are, again, not prepared properly. And as the trials, troubles, and tribulations of this world begin to pound against them, it chokes it out. The cares of this world, such as anxiety, worry, and so forth, begin to choke it out. They also appear to look to the things of this world, for their satisfaction, the materialism, the wealth that is mentioned there, and looking for the pleasures of this life rather than living for the things of God. Now, this amply describes those that would hear the gospel and and reject it, but it also can be paralleled with believers. Believers whose hearts have been hardened, Believers who have succumbed to the thorns of this world, the cares of this world. Believers that refuse to dig down deep and to allow the word of God to root within them. To show themselves strong in the time of temptation, trials, troubles, and tribulations. All of us know that the first trees to give way at a powerful windstorm are those who have weakened roots. And so it is with the life of the believer. You and I, if we are not rooted and grounded, I think I read that somewhere in the New Testament, Paul encouraging it to be rooted and grounded in God's word. And we see that. Now the question is, that many have at this point, is this. Who's actually saved out of these four? and there 's a consensus that they don 't they believe that the first one is certainly not saved, meaning that uh, when we are talking about the Gospel presentation, as Luke put it forward, that this just indicates pure rejection. They admit that the third one shows a fruitful response to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. but what about the other two? There appears to be initial life, but then that life is then. Um, hindered and hampered and it never produces fruit were they actually saved and they go back and forth on this and this often is determined by your predetermined position on soteriology if you hold to a calvinistic point of view or if you hold to an arminius uh, point of view but jesus answers the question for us history answers the question for us a plant that does not produce fruit was no good to the farmer, to the one who sows the seed. It didn't, it didn't constitute a healthy, living plant. Well, how do you know that, Eric? Well, Jesus told us. He says in Matthew 3, verse 10, and even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. How much clearer can that be? Fruit is the element of true evidence of salvation. Matthew seven nineteen through 20 Now, please, let us remember, guys. I said to you often that when you look for a theological concept within a book... Often that book itself develops that theological concept and allows for understanding. Matthew 7, 19 through 20. Jesus again said, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Matthew 10, 22. And you will be hated by all my namesakes. I'm sorry, for my namesakes. Excuse me, there's a glare. But he who endures to the end will be saved. Those who crumble under the weight of persecution may indicate the fact that they never truly were saved. This is consistent with what John says in 1 John 2, 19, when he says, they went from us because they were never of us. And if they were of us, they would have continued with us. But since they left us, they were truly never of us. Say that 10 times fast. Jesus was concerned about those who received his word. It grew and produced fruit. In these other cases, they need to take a step back and to see and to really ask themselves if they are saved. And why do I say that? Because of what Jesus said earlier in in the Sermon on the Mount. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of God then he went on to say uh, many will say to me in that time lord lord haven't we done all of these things in your name and then he'll say to them depart from me i never knew you never knew you now before you get concerned And before you start fretting over this, and I do think that this should cause us to take a step back. I am not advocating that we work for our salvation, but the works that we do manifest, uh, display for everyone to see where we are at. Okay? Out of the mouth proceeds the depth of the heart, Jesus said. So what comes out, what we do, is an indicator of where our heart is. We can go into that and more, but I want you to know this, that if you encounter someone who doesn't know the Lord and their heart is hard, if you encounter someone who receives initially and then fades away due to uh, persecution, trials, troubles, and tribulations, the things of this world, or if you meet someone and the cares of this world choke them out, I want you not to to give up on them and to think that they are a lost cause because God is in the business of changing the condition of our hearts. The word of God was given to the Jewish people to break up the fallow ground of their hearts, to allow the word of God to penetrate and to bring forth fruit. Today we have one working alongside of us that is doing just that. He is actively involved in the salvation and the growth of individuals who follow Jesus Christ. He is unstoppable. Nothing can hinder his progress in his work. Nothing, even the hardest heart, cannot resist the power of the Holy Spirit working in this world. This is why Jesus promised us in John's Gospel, chapter 16, verses 7 through 11, of the coming of the Holy Spirit. He promised us this. He promised the disciples this to encourage them. That the Holy Spirit changes hearts and prepares the heart to properly receive the gospel of Jesus Christ or the word of God. The Holy Spirit is at work in this world alongside of us. When you go into a conversation with the purposes of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are not alone. There's one working with you, alongside of you in that purpose. And he is oh so powerful. As Jesus told his disciples in John 16, 7-11, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Now, it's interesting that often when that word helper is seen, we personalize it. Oh, he's here to help me. Yes, but he's here to help you do something very specific, that is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Also to help you grow in the faith. I don't want to diminish that, but I just want to get our eyes off of us for a little while. But notice, he says, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. And this brings up a very important and why we are studying the kingdom of heaven is like statements in the New Testament. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven will not be advanced simply through political means. Do we all know and believe that now? And I also want to remind you of this. Technically, there are only two kingdoms operating on this earth currently. There's the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, and the kingdom of the ruler of this world, Satan. There's only two. And as Satan is moving forward, bringing the world to destruction and to suffer the judgment and the wrath of God to come, The Holy Spirit is moving across this world, and each and every person equipped with the gospel of Jesus Christ becomes an ambassador for God. To take the gospel into your world, to share, to be a light amongst the darkness, to be salt in a fallen world. You and I, equipped with the Word of God, the Spirit of God, there is nothing that can come against us to hinder the purposes of God. Do we believe that? Do we believe that we are not fighting for victory, but we're fighting from victory as believers in Jesus Christ? And each and every time I get before the world or I have an opportunity to share Jesus Christ... I know that the greatest ally that I could ever have is God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit working in conjunction with what he has called me to do. We need to be on a rescue mission. We need to seek and to save those who are lost. We need to find humble boldness in a world that is trying to intimidate and cancel us every step of the way. We are not going to win the world by appeasing these ideologies. Let us understand that. Because one of the things that Munich showed us all through the negotiations of John Kennedy before World War II is that appeasement only makes the aggressor more aggressive. And if we think that we are going to appease our culture and that they're going to ease up on us, we're crazy. No, now is the time as the early church in the wake of the persecution of the religious leaders, when they had that opportunity, when they were threatened to no longer pray or to speak in the name of Jesus and proclaim his name, they all ran, they hid, right? They locked down. They stopped because they were afraid to lose their jobs and to lose their friends on social media and to be, uh, you know, uh, belittled and uh, disparaged on Twitter, right? That's what they did, right? Right? No, they prayed for boldness. God gave it to them and shook the world through them. That's the same God that is operating today. Guys, we can't retreat because each one of us has a loved one that doesn't know Jesus Christ. And God wants to use each and every one of you in the world in which you occupy. Now, there's one of two things you're going to do. You're going to stand up for the gospel of jesus christ in love in humility in the power of the spirit equipped with the word of god or you're going to blend into the background by conforming into the world's ideas of who you should be and you are going to count yourself irrelevant in the greatest mission of rescue that the world has ever faced the choice is yours I'm not condemning you. I'm not judging you. I'm just laying it out here. Because as we find what the kingdom of heaven is truly like, we're going to see that we as Americans maybe not, do not fully understand what God is doing now. And we need to. Because I believe His return is close. I believe the world is aligning. That the infrastructure for the Antichrist to capitalize is being built around us. The minds are shifting. The ideologies are are so frantically false in so many ways that the gospel of Jesus Christ in this darkness should be like a beacon of light to hope. But let me say this to you in all fairness and openness. They're going to hate you. They're going to persecute you. Aren't you glad if you came for an uplifting sermon today? And they're going to treat you just as they treated Jesus, who loved them perfectly and displayed God for them perfectly, because they loved the darkness more than the light.